Good evening. Good to see everybody. Are we on here? Yes, we are. All right. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 17? Now, in our study in Revelation, we are currently in chapter 17, which, as we have said, chapter 17 and 18 form the last parenthesis of the book of Revelation. First one was chapter 7. Second, we had a long one, chapters 10 through 14, and now chapters 17 and 18. And what these are is they're kind of flashbacks. Uh, the narrative has progressed so far, it stops, and then these parentheses go back and fill in some gaps, expand on some things that were left out to give us a fuller understanding of what has happened. So that's uh, chapter 17 and 18. And uh, it's giving us a look, first of all, chapter 17, at the religious aspects of Babylon the Great. Now, as we have said, the term Babylon uh, occurs uh, in the Bible second only to Jerusalem as a city. Jerusalem appears in the Bible about 800 times. Uh, Babylon, about 300. That's far more than anything else. Uh, this is an important subject and one we have to understand, and the Holy Spirit goes to, to great lengths to um, incorporate into his word these uh, things that we might learn them and understand. And so we're looking at chapter 17, which focuses on the religious aspect of Babylon the Great, and then chapter 18 zeroes in on the commercial aspect of this final world empire. So... We didn't meet last week because it was Passion Week and we had Good Friday service. So let's come, let's start all over with just Revelation chapter 1. I mean, no. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1. All right. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. How would you like to have an angel talk with you? You know what? It may have happened. Hebrews, Remember? Be careful how you entertain strangers. You might be entertaining angels. I don't know where. That's a freaky verse. Okay. I don't, I've, I've entertained a few devils in my time. I'm not sure about any angels. Well, you guys are angels. So okay. But um, uh, this angel talked to John saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, and the filthiness of her fornication, and verse 5 we want to really key in on, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so as we have been studying chapter 17, uh, we have first of all been trying to determine just who or what this woman is. It's key. It's key. Uh, she is called Mystery Babylon the Great. The word mystery there is a Greek word, the word mysterion, and it means something that was hidden uh, or unknown but is now being revealed. Remember Paul said with regard to the rapture, behold, I show you a mystery. 
Well, he used the Greek word mysterion, means, meaning that this was hidden, but now Paul was revealing it in its fullness, the rapture, okay? Um, so this is a word that means something that was once hidden, but is now being revealed. Mystery Babylon. The word occult means secret things, secret things. This is going to be an occultic religion. Now, the things of the occult for many years, again, were secret things. They were kept quiet. I've told you the story that years and years ago, when I first got saved, many years ago, I was in a, a, a secular bookstore looking around, had a little time to kill, and uh, I think I was tr looking for a, a Bible. But um, uh, I wandered all the way to the back of the store to the occult section. At that time, this was a major, uh, you know, bookstore, like, like a Brentano's or whatever. In the very back of the store, they had a couple of, I don't know, maybe four-foot-wide standing bookcases with some occult stuff, New Age, different occult things, you know, like they were embarrassed of it. But here it is for all you weirdos that want occult stuff. It's back there. Now, if you walk into a secular bookstore today, the occult section takes up most of the store. We're talking about rows and rows and rows of books. It's almost like the Christian section is now a couple of shelves in the back. Okay? But um, the point I'm making is that this religious system we're going to study tonight it, for many, many centuries was hidden. It was secret. It was not uh, broadcast openly. But in these last days, and especially as you enter the tribulation period, it's going to become mainstream. Mainstream. In fact, we read in Revelation how that during the period of the tribulation period, that the devil and his the devil is going to be worshipped as God, and 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 Christians who worship the true God are going to be looked upon as the devil worshippers. So the the devil worshippers at that time they're the good guys. And the people who worship the true and living God, they're the evil weirdos. Okay, it's a, a total moral uh, inversion. Is, and we're seeing it starting even now. Okay, um, But in verse 5, this woman is called the mother of harlots. In other words, she has given birth to many like her, a spiritual brothel, if you will, of false religious systems. Now, there are many Protestants and evangelicals that believe that she is none other than the Roman Catholic Church. And I've said it before, let me say it again. While I believe that the Roman Catholic Church is part of this false religious system called Mystery Babylon, and probably maybe even the main part, this verse teaches us that whoever this woman is, this false religious system, she has been around, listen, from the beginning. From the beginning thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church started. She is referred to as the source or the fountainhead of all false worship on the face of the earth, of course, including Roman Catholicism, but not uh, exclusive of the Roman Catholic Church. We've talked about this, but let me say it again. The first false religious system on the face of the earth started with a man named Nimrod. Nimrod. 
who built the Tower of Babel. Okay, This was a tower that, if you read Genesis 11, verse 4, it talks about them building the Tower of Babel, a tower to reach up into heaven. And skeptics go, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. These people think they're good. they could make a tower that reaches up to heaven where God is? No, no, no. The Hebrew is not a tower that reaches up to heaven where God dwells. It's a tower that reaches up to the heavens. In other words, a tower that reaches high above the earth. A tower from which to worship the sun, the moon, the stars of heaven. An observatory. An observatory. Brick towers like this, guys, and you know this, brick towers like this were eventually built all over the world and were used in pagan religions. These towers are known as ziggurats. Ziggurats. Ziggurats were pyramid-like towers with steps on the outside so pagan priests could ascend to the top, which consisted of a platform that contained the sign of the zodiac. As I said, these ziggurats appear all over the world. All over the world. You've seen them, no doubt, in movies, in documentaries, and so on. But they were made so that a pagan priest could ascend to the top. Again, platform. They didn't use it to sacrifice animals. I don't know, maybe once in a while they did. Mostly it was for observing the hosts of heaven, the stars. Uh, planets and so on, right? Um, not only were these ziggurats used as a place to, you know, worship the moon, stars, planets, and of course the sun, um, but also a place used by pagan priests to chart the stars, chart the stars. Uh, through their observations of the stars, these priests supposedly gained spiritual insights and knowledge of the future. Nimrod, whose name means rebel, rebel, was the first to build one of these ziggurats, him and his followers, again called the Tower of Babel. But he was also, guys, the first dictator on the face of the earth and the first cult leader in human history. In the scriptures, he is referred to as, and I'm quoting Genesis 10 verse 9, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But the Jerusalem Targum says that really what's being said is he was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. You have him now as the first antichrist. God established a system of worship. God had a city that they all knew was coming. The city of God, right? A place where God was worshipped, where he reigned, and so on. And so you had the first antichrist, Nimrod, who decided he didn't want to live in the city of God. He wanted to live in his own city where he was basically worshipped as God. First cult leader, okay? Again, he was a rebel against God. And um, he built this thing in defiance of God to worship the sun, moon, stars, planets, uh, instead of God, okay? Uh, in defiance of the true and living God. And that is why from the very beginning, and I, I'm going through all this because I want you to understand, that's why from the very beginning Babylon was both a religion and a city. And you can't separate the two. But I want you to understand that, okay? Uh, when you read about Babylon, sometimes the city is in view, sometimes the literal city of Babylon, 
Sometimes uh, it's mentioned uh, in a uh, metaphorical way, uh, you know, but uh, it, it could be speaking of a city or a religious system. They're both connected, both intertwined. Of course, you realize that the Tower of Babel, Babel later became Babylon. Babel later became Babylon, the place where all false religions got their start. Again, verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. A harlot would be anything that um, draws away from the love of God, who really um, we are married to. I know Israel was, t was technically married to God. As Christians, of course, we're married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're betrothed to him. But the idea was that God created a race of people that, uh, that you know, he wanted them to worship him. And it was a, a, a beautiful kind of a, a very loving relationship he had in mind. But, of course, you always have rebels that want to do their own thing. Nimrod, um, you know, because of what he did in starting this false religious system, it became... Uh, the mother of all other false religious systems on the face of the earth. Let me give you a little background that we don't get from the Bible, but we do get from secular sources, all right? Nimrod had a wife whose name was Semiramis. She was the high priestess of the original Babylonian mystery religion started by her husband. She claimed that she conceived a son miraculously through a sunbeam without any intervention by a man. So therefore, when her son was born, a son she named Tammuz, he was virgin born. So the story goes. Semiramis claimed that this child was the sun god, who was born around the time of the winter solstice when pagans believed the sun god died. Why? Because it was the shortest day of light in the year. So if you're a pagan living in those days, uh, and you worship the sun, which pretty much every culture did in ancient times, as the, as the light or the, the days got shorter and shorter, they believed the sun god was dying. And around the time, on the, on the day of the winter solstice, the shortest day of light in the year, he died. And then right after that, as the light began to get, the days got, began to get longer, he was reborn. And as, as the days grew longer and longer, he was growing stronger and Growing up is the idea, all right? Um, as the legend goes, when Tammuz became an adult, legend says that he was out hunting one day. Well, why not? His dad was a mighty hunter, Nimrod, right? So he was out hunting one day, as the story goes, and was uh, gored by a wild boar and died. His mother fasted and prayed for him for 40 days, and he was then resurrected. Now, I'm not trying to just lay a negative trip on everybody. I'm just trying to give you history. This is where Lent comes from. Lent, a period of 40 days of, of fasting and prayer and mourning. This, it all comes from ancient Babylonianism. In fact, many of the beliefs and practices in mainline Christian denominational churches, especially the Roman Catholic Church, have come from ancient Babylonianism. And that's because when uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, 
And whether he really got saved, we're not sure. Uh, I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, he worshipped the sun god until the day he died. Doesn't sound like he really got saved. But maybe he did, and he was just very young in his faith. I don't know. Uh, but let's just assume he, he became a Christian. So when, uh, when Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian, he wanted to unify the empire by merging paganism with Christianity. And, and he decided the best way to do this would be to merge pagan feasts. Now, you remember, they didn't have a system like we have where you work five or six days a week on a day off and you got so many days a year for holidays and vacation. They worked nonstop, these pagan peoples, right? The only thing they had to look forward to were their feast days. And these were huge to them. Constantine knew he couldn't take away the pagan feast days. I mean, that would be start a revolt uh, in, the, in the empire. So what he did was he decided that he was going to merge the pagan feasts with important Christian observances or holy days. <laughs> what could go wrong with that? And so he decided to take the Feast of Saturnalia which was a pagan feast that took place at the time of the winter solstice in December, a feast that celebrated the birth of the sun god, and he turned it into the celebration, how slick, he turned it into the celebration of the birth of the son of God, Christmas. Many of our Christian traditions, Christmas trees, burning yule logs, mistletoe, can all be traced back to pagan origins, which got incorporated into Christian, into the Christian celebration of Christmas, thanks to Emperor Constantine. One historian noted, and I'm quoting, In the ancient cultures, many pagan religions through the centuries have worshipped the sun as a god, the source of light and life. As the winter solstice approached and the days got shorter and shorter, the peoples in these ancient pagan cultures believed that the sun god was dying. The ancient Babylonians worshipped Tammuz, the infant son of Semiramis, uh, as the sun god. He was always pictured as an infant in her arms, okay? So Tammuz was, was thought to be dying during the days leading up to the winter solstice, the day he eventually did die. So in these days leading up to the winter solstice, uh, they, the pagan peoples in these cultures burned a log in their fireplaces to help Tammuz bring light into the world during the shortest days of light when he was thought to be dying. The log remained burning in preparation for Tammuz's rebirth once again. The Babylonian word for infant is Yule. The, this is the origin of the Yule log. His rebirth was celebrated starting around December 24th by replacing the log with a trim tree the next morning, end quote. Every, now, I'm, I'm sure I ruined your Christmases for years to come. Every time you practice these things, you're thinking of the... Thing. Look, we don't look at it that way. Some Christians have a real problem with Christians having Christmas trees, you know? And if that's your conviction, I respect it. I mean, I don't... It reminds me of my childhood, and I had a good childhood. I, got, I grew up in a, in a wonderful family. Um, and it just reminds me of those days when I was younger with my family. I, I, obviously, we don't worship the tree. Uh, so, but, but if that's your conviction, I, I respect it. You know, just don't lay it on me. Now, well, 
What Constantine did in Christianizing Saturnalia in the winter, he did with the main pagan feast in the spring. In the spring of the year, the pagans worshipped a fertility goddess named Astarte. Astarte. This pagan feast was a festival to commemorate new life. Again, she was a fertility goddess. And so Constantine turned it into the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, which, of course, celebrates new life, resurrection life in Christ. So the feast Astarte became Easter. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered what Easter bunnies and colored eggs have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? And, of course, the answer is nothing. But they were used in the celebration of Astarte, who again was a fertility goddess, and rabbits and colored eggs uh, were always seen as symbols of fertility. All right, And so Constantine combined, listen, ancient pagan Babylonianism with Christianity, and the result was Roman Catholicism. Now look, those of you folks watching and you don't know who I am from Adam and stumbling around YouTube and said, this guy, I'll listen to him for a while. Um, let me just say this. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. So was my wife. I went to Catholic grade school. She went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. We are not rabid, Protestant, anti-Catholic bashing people. We have many people in our family that are Catholics, and we love them, all right? Um, it, it, but I, I want to tell you the truth so that you understand what we're dealing with here. I mean, remember I told you about how in the Vatican they have all kinds of artwork and one pastor visited there and saw this incredibly large tapestry of a woman right out of Revelation 17 riding this beast with the seven heads and ten horns. And on the this is in the Vatican. On the bottom of the tapestry says uh, the, the mother church. The Roman Catholic Church admits chapter 17 is about them. So, you know, please, I, I'm not the only one. All right. Um, but going back to Semiramis, the priestess of the ancient Babylonian mystery religion, when she gave birth to Tammuz, she and her son became the focus of a Babylonian mother-child cult. Semiramis eventually took the title the Queen of Heaven, the Queen of Heaven. Her son Tammuz was considered a savior of his people and purported to be the fulfillment of the promise God gave to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that she would be the mother of the Savior of mankind, the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. Satan was there in the garden when God made that promise. So Satan decided, I don't like the sound of that. I don't want anybody coming to crush my head. So he launched a preemptive strike to keep this Savior or Messiah from coming to the earth. What did he do? When we study Genesis 6, which is um, by no means a non-controversial passage, there's a lot of good teachers that don't agree with what I'm going to tell you I believe is going on. In Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, always a term for angels, these would be fallen angels, came down to earth and married human women. And they had offspring together. You say, well, how is that possible? I don't know. 
I'm just telling you what the Bible is teaching, okay? How this is possible, I have no idea. I'm not an expert on angels and what they're capable of doing. I know they can take human form. Can they impregnate women? It seems like they can, and they did. And what, what Satan tried to do is he tried to connect, contaminate the human race with demon seed. Because he knew a Messiah could not be born, okay, from ancestry that had demon seed in it. All right? That was his plan. And it wasn't just to infect or contaminate human beings. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that all flesh had been corrupted on the face of the earth. We're talking about people and animals. Are these demigod, uh, Greek uh, mythology, kind of half man, half, uh, half women, half man, half animal creatures, are they rooted in some fact? It could be. It could be. Well, we read in Genesis 6 how the only family that was yet uncontaminated was Noah, his wife, and their three sons and daughters. Eight people. And God instructed them to build an ark. And eventually they got on board. He got sent a flood and he wiped everything out and started over. So he thwarted Satan's plan. And by the way, these offspring of these uh, sons of God and daughters of men are called Nephilim in the Hebrew scriptures, which literally means fallen ones. These were giants. Remember how the Bible says there were giants in the land before and after the flood. This kind of thing continued. Is it still going on today? Possibly. Possibly. But um, these were, and Goliath was in his brothers. We read in the Bible about the Anakim, the Zamzumim, uh, these different cultures that were uh, these giants, right? Interesting, in one part of the Old Testament, it says that uh, Goliath had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, so did his brothers, and I would assume every other descendant of his family line. These were unusual beings. I believe half-human, half-demon hybrids, okay? But, but going back to, to Semiramis and also, so Satan tried to launch a preemptive strike to keep this Messiah from being born who would come and crush the devil's head, destroy his authority, and so on. Um, but God thwarted the devil by sending the flood, wiping out all these contaminated people starting over. Okay, So after God wiped out all flesh upon the earth, thus thwarting Satan's original plan, the devil changes tactics and adopted the strategy. If you can't beat him, what? Join him. Join him. And so, taking what God promised in Genesis 3.15, Satan developed a counterfeit religion and exported it to the whole world. To the whole world. Which came to be known as Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots. It was this religious system, guys, that gave birth to every false religion and cult on the face of the earth. You say, how? How? Turn to Genesis 11. <coughs> so Nimrod and his followers built the Tower of Babel. God saw what was going on, and the Trinity talked among itself. Because they speak one language, nothing will be uh, with, withheld from them, what they can do. And so we read in Genesis 11, verse 9. 
Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused. So God came down and confused the languages. Uh, at that point, mankind spoke one language. God came down and he brought about many languages and dialects uh, for the people that were living on the earth at that time. And because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, this is important, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face. All these people scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So when people were scattered abroad over the face of all the earth, they took this mother-child cult with them, which then became a worldwide religious movement. Idols picturing the mother as the queen of heaven with the babe in her arms are found throughout the ancient world after the Tower of Babel. Let me read, go through some of these quickly. In Phoenicia, the mother was called Astoreth, and the child was called Baal. In Egypt, she was called Isis, and the child was called Horus. In Greece, she was known as Aphrodite, and the child was known as Eros. The Romans called her Venus and the child Cupid. Now, we all know Cupid, right? This cute little pudgy uh, cherub-like creature with the little wings carrying the bow and arrows, right? And the idea is that he shoots people with the arrows and they fall in love with each other. Big, big deal around Valentine's Day, right? Don't be fooled by that. Cupid is a hunter, just like his father Nimrod was a hunter. There's nothing cute about it. This is part of a false religious system where Nimrod was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. Make no mistake about it, all these, these uh, offshoots of this mystery Babylonian religious cult were designed by the devil to kill, lead people on the wrong path, take them away from the truth, and damn their souls in hell forever. Nothing cute about Isn't it just like the devil to take something very wicked and evil and turn it into something cute and laughable? He's been doing that with sitcoms for years. They're not funny anymore, none of them. I don't, never watch any of them. But he's always trying. Because if you laugh at evil, it brings your guard down. And that's how he gets people to get into evil. Okay? Um, so Romans called her Venus the child Cupid. In India, they, they were known as Isaiah and Iswara. Here's the important one. Later, when pagan Rome was Christianized under Constantine, the mother became Mary and the child became Jesus. They're always pictured with Mary holding the baby Jesus in her arms with a halo behind each of their heads to represent their holiness, or so the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but actually, those halos are the sun because he represents Samaramis, who was impregnated by a sun beam and gave birth to Tammuz, the sun god. Those are not halos. Those are depictions of the sun going all the way back to Samaramis and Tammuz. Now, all of this goes back, as I just said, to ancient Babylonianism, to Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots, the mother of all false religious systems upon the face of the earth. In the scriptures, guys, um, many of these facts are not mentioned, okay? 
but we do see some glimpses that show up in Scripture, all right? We see some allusions to the conflict between the true faith, the faith of God, Judeo-Christianity, which also got started in the Garden of Eden because the truth was, God's truth was in the Garden, but also Satan's lie. Hold on to that, okay? The Bible doesn't go into great detail about this, but this conflict between God and the devil, between God's truth and Satan's lies, does show up in different passages of the Bible at different times. I'm thinking primarily of uh, the Old Testament uh, with regard to Israel and all. Um, this is a system that you obviously already know. We've talked about it. But this false religious system uh, is a system, that, system that's going to peak during the tribulation period and become the dominant world religion for a time hold on to that okay but we see little glimpses of this battle all right um for example ezekiel protests against the ceremony of weeping for tammuz now in ezekiel 8 you have to turn to it but i would encourage you to read it this week ezekiel is taken uh, by the spirit in the spirit to he, remember now he was a prophet in babylon during the exile, God takes him in the spirit to Jerusalem and says, what do you see? Oh, I see the wall of the city, but there's a hole in it. Climb through that hole. Now what do you see? Well, I see the wall of the temple. Well, open that door and go in. I'll let you read what he sees. He sees things that are so, for a man of God, are completely he breaks his heart and, and causes him to, uh, in disgust, cry out, what is this place? Because at one point he sees a room, and on the walls are all these pornographic pictures. And he sees, says, God, what is this place? He says, this, you're looking into the minds of my people. This is what they focus on, and they think I don't see. Ooh. Right? But hidden things belong to God. But at one point, and I'll read Ezekiel 8, verse 14, he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, the door of the north gate of the temple. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. You read a little farther, and he sees 25 men, listen, in the temple with their backs to the altar. So their backs are toward God. And they're facing the east and worshiping the rising sun of the east. What does all this mean? It means eastern mysticism had infiltrated what we would call the church of God, but the temple of God, the worship of God, where people in the temple who were supposed to be worshiping God were worshiping eastern mysticism, which would include Samaramis and Tammuz, and the rising of the sun in the east. We, and I did a series years ago called The Battle for Truth. And I brought some of this out. How that today in the church, Eastern mysticism has crept into the church. We're in the last days, right? The apostasy is, is here. The word apostasy means a departing from the faith. The one that was delivered to the saints, Jude 3, Right? contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the people of God. 
the faith is the body of truth that we hold dear. It's New Testament doctrine, but also would include Old Testament as well. Um, but the faith is being replaced with Eastern mysticism. Now, it's all being Christianized, quote-unquote, just like uh, Constantine tried to cr Christianize paganism, right? It's, it's being, what am I talking about? I'm talking about New Age doctrine that's in the church, visualization, uh, various other forms of, of occult practices that have been Christianized and passed off as wonderful new techniques to get in touch with God, uh, you know, contemplative prayer, where you have to practice uh, meditating and repeating a, a, a word or a phrase over and over or by using breath prayers until you finally work yourself into an altered state of consciousness known as the silence. And Christians are saying you can't really commune with God unless you enter into this silence. But Richard Foster wrote one of the most uh, prolific Christian books of all time, Celebration of Discipline. He said his best, his greatest chapter was the one on visualization. He said, but on a little caveat, if you practice this, you're going to enter into this silence and not all the spirits are friendly. So you have to learn to practice prayers of protection. Where, where in the Bible is this? Are you kidding me? I don't have to pray prayers of protection if I'm communing with the true and living God. He's going to watch over me. He's going to let the devil get me when I'm in his presence and worshiping and praying to him and so on. I, I don't have time to get into it, but we are in the last days, and Eastern mysticism has crept into the church just like it crept into Israel many centuries ago, and it's amazing. So God's people were doing the very things God had forbidden. They were practicing paganism, much of it under the guise of Judaism, and today under the guise of Christianity. So Ezekiel mourns for women in the temple who were not worshiping God, but were practicing what we would call Lent, that period where Tammuz had died, his mother had fasted and prayed, you know, and uh, here they were, they were practicing this in preparation for his resurrection. Now, Jeremiah mentions the heathen practices of making cakes for the queen of heaven and offering incense to the queen of heaven. I'll have you turn, first of, all, first of all, Jeremiah 7, verse 18. Jeremiah 7, 18. God says, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. These would be offering cakes. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. God's people having fallen into paganism and idolatry. Look at Jeremiah chapter 44. I want to read verses 17 to 19 and then verse 25. Jeremiah 44 verse 17. The people are saying, But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, they're defiant. We're not going to change. For then we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. What does the Bible say? 
the goodness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Sometimes we can be involved in something that's sinful. And yet God keeps blessing us. We could wrongly interpret that as what I'm doing is not sinful. In fact, God must approve. Or if you're a pagan, there is no God except the God that I worship, which is whatever God you fill into the blank. Okay, But here the people were misinterpreting how much God loved them and what he was not wanting to bring judgment right away, but kept blessing them. And they interpreted that to mean they were being blessed because they worshiped the queen of heaven. Okay, you see it here in the text, right? Verse 18, but since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Well, judgment finally caught up to them. Okay, they, you see how some people are so twisted in their thinking. They're misinterpreting everything. Here, God's grace has run out and they're reaping now the consequences of their sin because they weren't getting it. If God's velvet glove approach doesn't work, he'll bring out the stick if he has to. The goal is to get you to repent so he can start blessing again. Well, they didn't get it. They thought that, you know, because they had stopped worshiping the queen of heaven, because Jeremiah and other the good prophets were telling them to knock it off, all of a sudden things got bad. Oh, see that? It was a lot better we were worshiping the queen of heaven. No, no. See, they, they were misinterpreting everything, okay? And... Um, Again, verse 19, the women also said, and when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, we did, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? We, our husbands were telling us it was okay? Well, that's a problem. If your husband's a you know, coconut head and he's not in the word at all, you're supposed to, women, wives, submit to your husband unless... As unto the Lord, right? In other words, if he is a godly person and he is walking with Christ, submit to him. I mean, there are times when ungodly husbands want their wives to watch porn with them or go to a bar to get drunk or whatever. In those cases, of course, a woman is not to submit. She is to obey God rather than men. And we, we understand that, okay? But here they're using this as a justification. Well, we were worshiping the queen of heaven, but our husband said it was okay. All right, well, verse 25. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. God says, You will surely keep your vows. In other words, go right ahead. Because... My wrath is now upon you, and I'm going to wipe you out. Gave you a chance to repent. You didn't want to repent. You became defiant and said you were going to keep doing exactly the paganism you were doing. So go ahead and keep your vows. Instead of repenting, keep those vows, because they're going to be your downfall is the idea. Now listen, the worship of Baal, which was a characteristic of the people of Canaan, right? That was their main uh, deity. Uh, the, he was also a fertility god. Okay? and uh, But the worship of Baal, which was again characteristic of the pagan religion in Canaan, was another form of the same mystery religion that originated in Babylon. Baal 
is considered identical to Tammuz. One author said, and I quote, the doctrines of the mystery religions of Babylon seem to have permeated the ancient world, giving rise to countless mystery religions, each with its cult and individual beliefs offering counterfeit religion and a counterfeit God in opposition to the true God revealed in the scriptures, end quote. All of these false religious systems have been spawned by the devil, foisted on the human race, perpetuated, and so on. They're all in defiance of God. This is why when you hear people talking that, well, you know, God doesn't care really what we believe. It's only that we're sincere. You should say, get thee behind me, Satan. That is absolute. Of course God cares what you believe. He cares. It's called his truth. The gospel. Without believing in the gospel, I don't care how sincere you are, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end thereof is the way of what? Death. God doesn't account sincerity for righteousness. He accounts faith for righteousness, and faith in the truth is the idea. Okay. Now, guys, as I just said, the latest iteration of this mother-child worship cult has come down through the Roman Catholic Church in the form of Mary worship, to whom the Roman Catholic Church has given the title Queen of Heaven. We grew up, when I grew up, we had a family Bible. Never opened it. Looked good. It was one of those pretty ornate, you know, family Bibles. And I remember leafing through it one day and looking, and it had some beautiful pictures. They hand-painted pictures, okay, of significant events that took place throughout the course of the Bible. You know, you saw Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You saw Noah bringing the animals into the ark. You saw Jesus teaching on the Mount of Beatitudes, you know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And then as you got to the end of the, and every picture had a scripture next to it to tell you where the picture was taken from. Okay? As you got to the end of the Bible, there were two pictures that didn't have any scriptures next to them. One was called the Assumption of Mary. Now, what is the Assumption of Mary? And they had a picture of Mary ascending into heaven. The Roman Catholic Church is not sure. I checked on it today just to make sure. The Roman Catholic Church is not sure that Mary did not die physically and was taken up into heaven bodily without dying, or that she did die, but God never let decay uh, take hold on her body, that he brought her up to heaven. She was never buried uh, up into heaven, um, the assumption of Mary. Okay, No scripture uh, by the picture because it's not biblical. The very next picture was Mary sitting on a throne in heaven and Jesus himself standing behind her and putting a crown on her head and it said on the, on the bottom, the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. Now the Catholic Church will tell you, we don't worship Mary. Well, you can check out Catholic literature on Mary. Some of you have and know what I'm talking about. They ascribe attributes to Mary that only God possesses. What do I mean? Well, they believe she hears the prayers of all Catholics, that she has the power to forgive sins and listen, and even that she is co-redeemer alongside of Jesus. 
Now, I've talked about this last week or two. But I went online, and I, I wanted to make sure I had my facts right. And I pulled an article down, just read a small part of it. And the article goes like this, and I'm quoting. In the church of the mother of God of Polish martyrs in Warsaw, Poland, Mary is depicted hanging on the cross holding the child Jesus. Outside the main Mary Basilica in Rome, there is a large crucifix with Jesus hanging on one side and a crowned Mary hanging on the other. The statue depicts Rome's dogma that Mary is the co-redemptress with Christ and that she intercedes for men from heaven and aids in their salvation, end quote. That is Catholic theology. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church may claim they don't worship Mary, but it's not true. Now, I'm not saying all Catholics worship Mary. I don't remember me worshiping Mary as a Catholic. Um, I, I don't remember worshiping Mary. Some groups are very big into Mary worship. I don't ever remember my family or myself participating in any kind of Mary worship, but there's a lot of Catholics out there who absolutely worship Mary. So there are many Roman Catholics who don't worship, uh, excuse me, who worship Mary, even some of them more than they do Jesus. They claim that Jesus is kind of an angry guy, you know, and, and you shouldn't even waste your time praying to Jesus because he doesn't want to help you anyways. But he will never say no to his mother. So you'd pray to Mary and then she'll butter Jesus up, give you what you want. What kind of a concept of Jesus Christ is this? It's absolutely blasphemy. Blasphemous, right? All right. But getting back to the practice of the ancient Babylonian religion and how it connects with, the Roman, with Roman Catholicism, the pagan high priest in the Babylonian cult called himself, listen, Pontifex Maximus, or the supreme or high priest, right? And the chief priests of this Babylonian mystery cult wore crowns, quote-unquote, which were really ornate headdresses in the form of a fish head in recognition of Dagon, the fish god. Even to this day, Roman Catholic bishops and cardinals wear miters on their head. If you look closely, they resemble fish heads. Not that they're worshiping Dagon, the fish god. I'm not saying that. But what they don't realize, many of them, is that these crowns or these headdresses go all the way back to Babylonianism, which many of them are clueless about, don't really understand the origins. Now listen, when Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, the pagan priests of the ancient mystery-slash-occult religion centered in Babylon since the days of Nimrod migrated north and west to Pergamos, where they... Uh, were headquartered for the next several centuries. Pergamus was where this system was headquartered in the first century, even as Jesus said to the church there in Pergamus in Revelation 2, verse 13, I know where you live, even where Satan's throne is. And when Rome rose to power, the Babylonian priests of this mystery cult religion moved the whole system to Rome, following the wealth and power, as they always did, and they wound up in Rome around 378 A.D. At that time, Rome became the headquarters or throne. Remember Revelation 2.13, I know where you live, even where Satan's throne is. 
Now that applied to Rome. Rome became the headquarters or throne of this false religious system where it still remains headquartered in the Vatican and from where it is branched out into the whole world under the guise of Roman Catholicism. Mystery Babylon. Branching out into all the world under the guise of Roman Catholicism. I don't know if you knew this. This was in my notes from my 2008 study in Revelation, so I went back to make sure that I had gotten it right. Sure enough, you know what the word Vatican means? It is Latin for divine serpent. <laughs> divine serpent. Let me give you a little challenge. Don't do it now. Google the phrase audience hall and the serpent. Audience hall is a large meeting hall located in the Vatican. You can go on, you'll see it. Held, holds about 6,300 people, okay? The inside of this hall is shaped to look like a serpent's head. And the Pope's throne is situated in the serpent's mouth. It's absolutely shocking. Now, guys, I believe, I see the Pope's throne. Yes, the Pope's throne is uh, located in the serpent's mouth of this auditorium. I believe that at the heart of all Babylonian false worship is, and I've talked about this before, don't have time to get into it tonight, uh, you can access the Battle for Truth, parts 2 and 3, we get into this in great detail. But I believe at the heart of all Babylonian false worship is the serpent's lie that he told Eve in the Garden of Eden, and you can check it out, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you pull up those uh, studies, we get into this in great detail. Let me just say this to you. Satan planted, not only in the Garden of Eden, I'm talking about into the human race. The serpent's bite, think of it as a serpent biting you, and the poison is now flowing through your body. The devil, by, uh, by um, putting his lie in the Garden of Eden, injected the human race with a poison. Now, we're all sinners on our way to hell. Jesus Christ, it is, I think I've told you this before. I was watching a documentary years ago where they had figured out how to use the white blood cells of sheep as an anti-venom to counteract the serpent's bite or poison. You can't make it up sometimes. God must be in heaven smiling, you know? Because the only antidote to the serpent's bite of the human race was the Lamb of God who died for our sins. Okay? But Satan planted in the Garden of Eden his lie. It has been growing and branching out. We've been talking about it all evening. And I believe, guys, that the same lie that Satan deceived Eve with will be the ultimate lie the Antichrist and false prophet will deceive the whole world the whole world with during the tribulation period. It's a very specific lie, as we have said, Romans 1.25 and 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Paul calls it the lie. A lot of lies in the world. He's got in mind a very specific lie. The only thing I can think of would be the lie in the Garden of Eden, which was introduced into the human race in its infancy, you know, embryonic stage, but has been growing and has been 
gatherings. And th- th- this is going to lead, it's going to crescendo with the world apostate church under the Antichrist and false prophet. Uh, we're done. Well, let me just finish to set this up for next week. Let me just say this, though. We see this apostate world church eventually taken over and replaced, actually incorporated into the Antichrist new religion with himself as God. But then, of course, ultimately, this whole system is going to be judged and destroyed by Jesus when he returns and establishes his kingdom, the kingdom of God over the face of the whole earth, a kingdom built on the worship of the true and living God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As I said earlier, and we'll finish with this, when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, he mixed Christianity with Roman Babylonianism, and the result was Roman Catholicism. What you may not know is when Constantine became uh, emperor of Rome, he assumed headship of the church, taking the title for himself Pontifex, Maximus, or the maximum or highest priest, okay? It was the Roman emperor who was first called the vicar of Christ. A lot of people don't know this. It was the emperor of Rome, Constantine, who was first called the vicar of Christ, a title inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire disintegrated. Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the popes, Thus, the head of the Roman Catholic Church is called Pontifex Maximus, Maximus, or the Roman Pontiff to this day. Now, I personally think that Mystery Babylon is broader than just the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, Mystery Babylon has been around since Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church came into existence. She, Mystery Babylon, has spawned all false religions on the face of the earth, including Roman Catholicism. Now, I think Roman Catholicism, guys, and I'm setting this up for next time. You don't want to miss this next time. I think that Roman Catholicism is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a one-world church, bringing people of all faiths together. In fact, she has been positioning herself for that role for some time. And next week, God willing, we'll get into some of this uh, as to what I'm referring to and um, John's reaction to this church he sees in Revelation 17. And it's pretty remarkable. So we'll get to that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Wow, Lord, you are just opening our understanding to so many things that have gone on in this world. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from Satan's lies. Thank you, Lord, that you administered to us the antidote for the serpent's bite, the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We just praise you, Lord, And we realize that we are probably now on the downward slope, picking up speed, coming to your return quickly and your kingdom. But the rapture, Lord, is looking very, very near. Give us grace, Lord, to always be serving you. 
that when you come for us, you might find us doing and not sleeping. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.